Greetings. This is Alexia Hudson Ward, the editor in chief of Toward Inclusive Excellence, or TIE for short, a multimedia blog hosted by Choice, a publishing unit of the Association of College and Research Libraries, a division of the American Library Association. We explore issues of equity, diversity, inclusion, and accessibility that affect the higher education community. Among the goals of this channel is the development of a pool of knowledge and actionable resources for information professionals, students at every level, faculty of all disciplines, campus staff, and administrators seeking to understand systemic racism from new perspectives and to promote social justice on their campuses. We are excited to welcome you to our podcast series that borrows its name from the Higher Education Academic Calendar. Therefore, welcome to Ty's Fall Semester Podcast. Our third Fall Semester Podcast features an enlightening and uplifting discussion with Dr. Adrian Lim, Dean of Libraries and Professor of Practice in the College of Information Studies at the University of Maryland College Park. Before joining the University of Maryland in August of 2019, Dr. Lim was the Dean of Libraries and the Philip H. Knight Chair at the University of Oregon. She was also the Dean of Libraries at Oakland University in Michigan and served as Interim University Librarian at Portland State University, also in Oregon. In her early career, Dr. Lim was systems librarian and head of database management for the Detroit Area Library Network. Active in our profession, Dr. Lim is chair of the Center of Research Libraries Board, is a former counselor at large for the American Library Association, and has held various leadership roles in the Association of College and Research Libraries and the Association of Research Libraries. She is also a member of the U.S. government's publishing office's task force on an all-digital federal depository library program. Dr. Lim earned her Ph.D. in library and information science, specializing in managerial leadership at Simmons University. A first-generation college student and native of Detroit, she holds a master's degree in library and information science and a bachelor's degree in fine arts, both Sumna Cum Laude from Wayne State University. She is award-winning and widely published. In this podcast, Dr. Lim discusses how she navigates the leadership labyrinth as a BIPOC lesbian, her motivations for pursuing a career in academic library leadership, and her strategies for overcoming cultural and systemic factors that can at times impede the success of people of Asian descent, a phenomenon referred to as the bamboo ceiling. Now to our conversation with Dr. Adrian Lim. Greetings to our Toward Inclusive Excellence community. In our third semester podcast, oh man, fall semester podcast is what I meant to say. We are joined by Dr. Adrian Lim, Dean of the Libraries and Professor of Practice in the College of Information Studies at the University of Maryland College Park. 
Dr. Lim's career path is so incredible, and I'm excited to speak with you today about your role and how you've been able to navigate the leadership labyrinth as a BIPOC lesbian person. Dr. Lim, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. It's a treat to have this conversation with you. And so please share with our Thai audience, what motivated you to pursue academic library leadership roles and why? Well, that is a very interesting question. I'm one of those types of people that always just acknowledge uh, the luck, the opportunity that was there uh, beyond anything that I planned for my life. Uh, And then each little step of the way, smaller decisions led to what became Little did I know it then, but a lifelong passion for academic librarianship. But Mm. it it started mostly uh, just as a young kid who loved public libraries. So I was attracted to libraries in the beginning. I'm a native of Detroit, grew up in a really, you know, what was essentially a very poor working class neighborhood. And we Mm -hmm. had this little outbranch of the Detroit Public Library in that neighborhood. And I used to go to it almost every day. And it was like my little haven. Um, Mm. And later, because nobody else in my family had gone to college. And in those days, most people in my neighborhood, we were not expected to go to college just generally. We thought we were brought up to almost expect factory work. Mm. Of of course, Mm -hmm. the automobile industry in Detroit, you know, changed dramatically, as you know. And then, um, you know, some of us didn't have, quite a good future to look forward to. So for me, I went back to college, into community college when I was in my late 20s. And I was the first one, as I said, in my family. And so by the time I went from community college to regular university, Wayne State University, I walked through some of the aisles and I literally started sobbing because... Mm. One of the areas that I walked through were the HQs, Library of Congress, you know, classifications. Yes. <laughs> but because I'm feminist, lesbian, uh, I have a lot of class consciousness from being an activist in my day. But I had never actually been in a library that had that many books that were calling out to me, all those voices, all those minds. That's how I thought of it. Mm, and it mm-hmm. made me sob. So after I got my library degree, I thought either public libraries or academic libraries, both of those attracted me just because I love libraries. But then academia started uh, being more compelling because I thought it was really a way to help people transform their lives even more so than perhaps public libraries, although I love them Mm -hmm. So that's Mm -hmm. how I ended up in it. I just love it and uh, continue to think We have a unique mission uh, in the world. Our values are unique. I am mindful, though, of vocational awe these days. Yeah, yeah, yes. A wonderful article, um, and I can't remember her name. At Bubazi. Bubazi, yes. Uh, But I love that article. Uh, There were many things that I thought resonated uh, with me. Uh, But on the other side of that article, definitely I still believe that we do things in the world that not many others do. Mm-hmm. Uh, intellectual freedom, privacy, et cetera, you, we know. 
Uh, so that's what attracted me. Thank you for sharing that. And, and I absolutely agree with you. It's, it's interesting. I think at another time, we should definitely have a conversation around the public library to academic library kind of trajectory, because it seems to be such a consistent thread of how many BIPOC leaders have come into the academic library space. It was some touch point that took place or a series of touch points that took place in the public library space that led us to say, yeah, we could see ourselves doing this work. And could you talk a little bit about your professional trajectory? So kind of from first job to position here, um, how did that look for you? Uh, Well, one of my first jobs uh, was working in the community college library, Schoolcraft College, and I was a library technician. I remember they were requiring a bachelor's degree to get that position. And so, mm. as I told you, I'm an older student, no one, you know, first one. By the time I got my bachelor's degree, I was so, I literally was jumping up for joy at mm. having to leave corporate America. I had made my way without any degrees, uh, mm. not even a high school degree. I, I had a GED for reasons I won't go into, but. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I felt I had reached my ceiling by then at the age of, you know, late 20s. So when I got my first job as a library technician, that was just like a dream come true, you know. And so I worked with uh, her name, I believe, if I remember correctly, Denise Nesbitt. She was a librarian of color who worked at Schoolcraft College. She was Mm. the first librarian of color, uh, a black woman who I had ever seen in that role or any woman of color in that role at that time. And I was looking at how well she did her job. She was a great leader. And I thought, maybe I could do that. Hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I uh, enrolled in Wayne State's library school. So from that job, then Wayne State hired me. And I went into IT and systems work after being a cataloger. Back then, okay. back, mm-hmm. you know, back then, uh, IT was um, transforming almost everything. Everything. Like, everything, yes. We're talking. Yes, and at a quick clip. Yes. Quick, quick, quick clip. Wow, that's hard to say. <laughs> it is like, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what was wonderful, so I had always been computer kind of savvy, even though at that time, not many people were. So I had that going for me, I guess. And then not a um, shyness about, so just to share, I realized that other people who didn't know the answer about IT, they would say things like, I'll get back to you in a minute. And then they'd Mm. go and look it up and read the manuals. And I said, hey, I can do that too. I can learn. (laughs) So I did learn some programming. I knew how to do some systems administration et cetera, et cetera. So I used that to go into more IT and systems. And from there, started working for the Detroit Area Library Network. And I became a consortial librarian. And Mm. we migrated 30-some-odd organizations from their first-generation systems into next-generation integrated library systems, et cetera, et cetera. But later, when I became an associate dean and then moved up the ranks, Finally, to go into um, deanships, Uh, I've been a dean now level four times now. Uh, Wow. In the earlier days at smaller state college, you know, colleges. 
Um, mm-hmm. But people would ask me, well, coming up from IT, how do you think you can do the full domain? The, the lucky part, remember I said I count lucky. The lucky, yes. the lucky part was as an IT systems librarian at that time, you got to go into almost every area of the libraries, work closely with the people there to change workflows and integrate new systems and services. Uh, it was policies. It was more than just about the t- IT. It was about everything. And so that really helped me learn the full domain of the library. So that's, mm. that was my mm-hmm. trajectory. By the way, I used to be involved in DEI work in the, mm-hmm. when it wasn't popular, like back in the 1990s. How, how about that, right? I don't think that a lot of people <laughs> understand that the traction that it has gained now was not the case in the early part of your and my career at all. It was a big tussle. Yes, it was. Uh, Well, and and at Wayne State, there was a time when every single person in administration there, and and I love my alma mater, you know, don't get me wrong, but just factually, everybody happened to be white. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to work with other, the few unicorns of us who were BIPOC librarians. (laughs) I was trying to tell, tell people, you know, work with them to mentor, to say, you really should be in leadership. You should be trying. And then one time someone looked at me and said, well, what about you? And I said, no, no, no. I Mm. like being, I like being middle management. I, I, you know, that's, and, but the words struck me and I thought, you know, I think I do have to step up to the plate. So it was Mm -hmm. more about that. Nope. We needed to be at the table and there were only so few of us around. So that's, that's what happened. Right. Wow. And I do want to expand more on, on your career path in relationship to the deanship, because uh, it's such an important piece around, particularly for those who aspire to leadership, to hear from someone who has done it in multiple places and in multiple ways. But I'll, I'll share with you a quick anecdote is that in a recent conversation, Adrian, I asked a person, a library dean, you know, just like, you know, how are you doing? And the person said to me, you know, Alexia, deaning is hard. And I don't think that people really understand how hard it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I've heard this kind of concept, of, as I'm sure you have, you know, living in, in the role multiple times, this, this notion of deaning, you know, which is a way, I think, to describe both the overt and the invisible labor that goes into being a top administrator over a major unit. But I don't think that people really have a sense of the skills or the attributes that are required to be a successful library dean. So what are some of the skills and attributes that have made you successful as a four-time library dean and why? Thank you for that question. I mean, uh, if I could say first, just to frame this uh, before I answer that question. Sure. Well, one thing after having done this a few times now, one at different levels. Each of the times it was to maybe a bigger, more complex place. So it was a mm-hmm. challenge. It was a challenge, you know. But all right. of the places I've been have been arguably very under resourced. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's so surprising to hear. You know, I, I can't imagine that. That's so surprising. <laughs> well, and then many people, I, I, it's been said, and if any of your listeners are from Harvard, so forgive me, Harvard people, but 
It's been said <laughs> out there that even Harvard feels poor. Uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> but mainly because we all stretch, stretch to whatever that capacity is, and then you feel overstretched. But I'm talking poor, usually, where you hardly have enough to do your core functions, you're, yet you still have to be innovative. Um, right. But what I wanted to say about that was, I hope that all of us, when we do talk about leadership, understand that every context is so can be so different. And then in libraries, especially, that some of the contexts are not very visible. They're hidden. Yeah. For yeah. example, one place I went in five years, three presidents, four provosts, budget cuts, um, another place, no endowment, yet another place, the library had five million in spending endowments every year. Uh, so a lot of these things are not well advertised, but that does hurt my heart a bit when you have so many challenges that someone else may not have and right. yet people compare whereas the comparisons are apples and oranges at times so that's my overarching frame uh the skills one needs well of course caring about people and actually being able to work well interpersonally is so important and if you know i tend to be pretty introverted but I've had to overcome a lot of that. So I, I guess I would say that if you are introverted, being able to push yourself to be a bit more extroverted while still honoring honoring yourself, you know? Yes, yes. We introverts, we need to go re-energize re ourselves after things. But in this type of role, you really have to be around people quite a bit. You have to do public speaking quite a bit. Uh, I, for example, just recently had to go to a cocktail party. I'm not the cocktail party type. I hear you. <laughs> but you have to meet donors there, supporters, uh, right. other board yes. members. So, so I think that's important. Being strategic, yet then being able to gain the respect of your of your team by at least knowing the domain enough that you can help to if they need it, help to guide, help to shape the program or the, you know, whatever you're working on. I think that is important. Um, yes. And then knowing how to, if possible, manage up and, you know, be able to, once you're at a different table that's outside the library, I think that could be a shock to some people who've never held this role, that you're now suddenly... The library is, yes, your organization that you're representing, but you're part of a team now. And yeah, you're not, right. you know, you're not able to bring up the library, the library, library all the time, or else it may be seen as self-serving or counterproductive. So that part is a shock when you first sit at that other table. And so having to be very adaptive and in resource-constrained uh, organizations very resilient and resourceful. Those are things that I would say are the top. Uh, finally, willing to, I hate to say it because we talk about work-life balance a lot, yeah. but being willing to work a lot. It is 99% sweat. 
I, I would have to say. Yes. Yeah, thank you for that. And I want to expand just a little bit on this idea of the dean of the library sitting at these other tables, right? And so for our listeners and viewers, can you describe what those other tables are? So is this president's cabinet, provost cabinet, a combination of the two? Like, just give folks a sense of all these different spaces through which a library dean has to successfully navigate and negotiate. Oh, yes. Well, it's so interesting because I think if if some may not think about it that much, to really understand, depending on the structure of the organization, your table that you're sitting at might not be the right one you need to sit at. Mm. Or maybe it's not enough of the, of the tables, you know. Mm-hmm. The reason, mm-hmm. I, the reason I say that is there have been at times in the library world when people toy with, should the library be put underneath IT? Um, mm, that mm-hmm. was in reporting to a CIO. Right. I think I could see some advantages to that if I were really being honest. Like there, there could be some advantages. But on the other hand, I would not be sitting with academic leaders that often, with other right. deans who are uh, running the academic programs uh, and curriculum. You know, I, I wouldn't be at their table that much. Um, student success, I might not be. So uh, I'm just saying it depends on your context. Mm-hmm. I personally, so in my role, I sit with the deans of the university. And at that, those meetings, the academic priorities, programs, aspirations, strategic planning, all of that I get to partake in. So that's one thing. And then there are other groups on campus that uh, one gets assigned to, uh, committees that are at a campus-wide or institution-wide level on rankings and reputation, for example, uh, what else, student success types of uh, committees. Uh, Some of them you might start as a library dean. So, Mm, for example, mm -hmm. I started one here working to get the sponsorship of others but on affordable course content uh, and on open science. Uh, I started those by reaching out to uh, VP of research, the provost, you know, saying, would you sponsor these new groups? And then you go across all the departments and try to get key faculty champions to work with you. Mm -hmm. So mm-hmm, those tables, mm-hmm. uh, occasionally I do sit with the presidents and VPs. We have retreats okay. and other meetings, uh, but those are not, you know, the pro, if I were, I report to the provost. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes we're not all together because she does want her own team to be able to develop that, but we do sit together at times. And at those meetings, I can bring up highly high level aspirational directions and projects to get the president's ear and the other vice presidents. So I hope that, I hope that answers your question. But No, it, it absolutely does. And thank you so much, because I do feel like that gives broader perspective, um, because particularly for people who are interested in pursuing the path of leadership, you raise so many important points and that it's all not internally focused or scoped. You know, that once you reach that top level within an academic library, 
you're going to be doing the work of the deanship or the director plus institution-wide work and just being able to be a successful navigator within those different contexts and being able to flip different hats is really going to be important for one's success. So no, you absolutely answered the question. Thank you. Um, one of the other things that that people will ask me about, and I imagine they ask you about this as well, Adrian, is about professional development and how does one grow their skills, right, in order to lead successfully, particularly in these very complicated times. And and you have always, as long as I've known you, you've been very committed to professional development. You know, in the midst of having multiple jobs, you pursued and got a PhD. You know, so you, so I've always admired that aspect of you. And I think though that many people in our profession feel that their time is so limited. Like where do I carve out space for professional development, right? They can't see themselves, you know, really allotting the essential time to it. So how are you able to carve out time for your professional development? Well, you know, that that is a tough, tough, tough dilemma. And um, I will always admit to, you know, certain privileges and differences I have. And one of those is, you know, I chose to be childless, free, child free yeah. in my life. Yeah. Um, sometimes I look at some of my colleagues, uh, women who have uh, families, and I wonder, how do you do it? How do you carve out time? Yeah. Um, right. So, but with that said, the jobs could consume all of us. I'm talking not even leaders, not just leaders, but all of us in libraries. I mean, the complexity of our jobs just keeps exponentially growing. And all along, yes. because of our service ethic and what we do, information, the boundaries are kind of fuzzy these days. So we belong in a lot of arenas. And that means time is very constrained, too. Um, mm -hmm. But with that said, then, one just really has to prioritize and focus and try to say no on occasion to some service opportunities, some other tasks where one can to take care of oneself. In a way, if you think about it as a self-care moment, mm -hmm. in, in this case, self-care professionally. That mm, unless we mm -hmm. refresh ourselves and really do some deeper work, uh, let's say you want to write an essay or you want to read a book that really helps you or take a course online, I think we have to carve that time out. And if something otherwise has to wait or be put on hold, it just has to be done. Time is finite, right. so we can't do it all. Uh, but right. I've right. just been lucky that... Uh, I, I didn't have uh, kids to have to work, you know, to take care of. So that was one th way I did it. Right. No, that's really very helpful too, because the other, the other piece of it, frankly, is that, it, you know, we often, I think, talk about this, this notion of, well, you got to take these courses or you should do this particular type of work, or you should do these particular type of activities. But the reality for many is that, you know, they're trying to balance that with so many other duties and responsibilities. And I think that that's the that's the that's the self-reflective conversation that people need to have about their desire to go into leadership. 
before wanting to pursue leadership because it is time consuming without a question. You're not going to get all of the skills or the knowledge that you need through observation or through, um, you know, graduate school um, in librarianship or in the information, you know, sciences or, or information studies or communications. Like you're going to have to just really identify what are those key opportunity areas for yourself and then literally build a plan for it. Yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. And Well, that word plan that you said. Alexia, I think that's important because uh, I tended in the earlier days, too, to just kind of almost be ad hoc as things presented themselves or opportunities, you know, go here, go there. But I do think more of us, maybe including myself, could do well with really planning out the next few years plans that are flexible, you know. Right. That's right. That's right. Yes. But think ahead that far ahead, maybe, and even ask yourself what is it that I truly want? And then scaffold onto that until uh, you get there. Right, right. No, absolutely, absolutely. I want to pivot now, Adrian, to talk about uh, the research around the bamboo ceiling, um, which I just find to be so fascinating. In fact, I know that there are a couple of new books that have come out about navigating the bamboo ceiling for colleagues who are of Asian descent. And some of the research talks about, you know, there's a set of factors, cultural, individual, and organizational, that can sometimes serve as a barrier for professional success. And, and I'll just very quickly share an example, which is a heartrending example when we kind of weave together the challenges of the bamboo ceiling and then also professional development. But I frequently have had to coach colleagues of Asian descent that you don't have to professionally develop around your um, culture or professionally develop around your accent, right? Mm -hmm. Yet this is something that remains a persistent challenge, right? And then, you know, for those who are thinking about moving into managerial roles, you know, there's there's still a lot of concern around, you know, strategies and and activities, right? So what can I do from a tactical perspective? And then what long-term strategies can I employ as a person of Asian descent in order to move, you know, towards professional success. So can you talk about some of your strategies and some of your activities that you've employed to circumvent the bamboo ceiling? Well, I still feel like I'm doing that too every day. I hear you. Right. I hear you. (laughs) Um, I think that it does still happen no matter what level uh, one is at or, where one sits in the organization, it happens. Um, and I wish I could give some silver bullety type of responses, but to be honest, um, some of it has been compromised where some of, I admit, adaptive. Where mm-hmm. I, I think all of us who, especially those of us who are BIPOC women, those who live in the intersections, Mm-hmm. We we have to do a lot of code switching at times and adaptation. Yes. yes. And for example, one thing that I was noticing a lot in my earlier career, when those colleagues who have mostly, they were usually white men who did it. I'm, I'm not saying all, but you would, you would contribute something and then they would repeat what you said. <laughs> And keep, like it was theirs. 
like it was theirs. And then the whole table would say, oh, yes, yes, I agree with Robert. It's a great idea. Mm-hmm. But I would, and of course, we all, many of us have experienced that. Uh, but I sat back and because I do one of the things I did think I have many weaknesses, but whenever I take all those strength finder tests and those things, uh, strategic always comes up like way off the spectrum. Uh, Mm. But I'd sit back and I'd think too about their body language. I'd be watching in their body language, why they did that, how they did that. And it started making me realize that some people speak up at the table just to have their voices heard. Mm-hmm. It didn't even matter the substance of what they were saying. <laughs> Isn't that so true? It's, and we're always so worried about, I, I literally made a joke in a meeting yesterday. I said, you know, I, I don't always talk because I want to make sure I share something yes. of value. Yes. But it's so real. You know, so Alexia, <laughs> see what I'm saying? Yes. <laughs> so that I started watching that and thinking I'm, and, and I, t- like I said, introvert. And I was like you, Alexia, where, I shared when I had something significant to say, and I thought that would be a great thing. Right. Uh, and and still, it is a great thing. Don't get me wrong. But I realized, no, I'm going to start adapting and doing that and seeing if it makes a difference. And I think it did start to make a difference. Where mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. another thing I would do, if somebody did try to take my idea and say it, repeat it, I would take my next opportunity at that same meeting to say, oh, and by the way, uh, as I was saying earlier, before Robert, you know, did repeat it, <laughs> but I would, I know that's <laughs> right, but you do have it's to so true. try to reclaim it. And another lesson, if I saw it happening to other women or people of color, you can, yes. be, you can be the voice to re- amplify their voice. To say, as um, Alexia said, da 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 da, I agree with Alexia. Right. Now we do it in Zoom with plus ones, and I love that. But right, but that's tight. That's just like a, a metaphor of what else you can do. Uh, I I have found that it is good to reach out and find a sponsor. Ask them to be your sponsor. Mm-hmm. Find mm-hmm. a good mentor. Uh, so as I said. Start watching those who maybe uh, you admire their successes and adapt to maybe try out some of their techniques. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the other, again, we do have to pay a tax in, I hate to say it, but sometimes more work. Now, I hope that changes and I hope it is changing now. But you did ask me what what it was for me. And for me, it was about, for example, I said, I am going to get the top credentials because that will never be an excuse. Amen. And so I would go like this on my arm. I'd say, you want me to have credentials? Well, I will have so many. But it was more about proving it to myself that nothing was going, nothing that I would do everything in my life to try to be at uh, where the decisions were being made. And it, it happened to work that, uh, by luck sometimes that I mm, got the opportunities mm-hmm. and it did help. 
But if I didn't have those credentials and that hard work behind me, I don't think I would have gotten the opportunities, to be honest. And that's where we do pay a tax in time and effort that others of the dominant culture, uh, you know, usually white people, but they don't have right. to pay those taxes. Right. That is such a really powerful and important point, because when we look at the data in relation to women of color, they are the ones that are doing the multiple certificates. You know, like someone was just saying to me, like, aren't you still in your PhD program? Yes. Didn't you do a certificate? And Yes. Aren't you? Didn't you just finish it? Yes. You know, (laughs) because like you, the, the credentialing matters for us. It absolutely does. It absolutely does. Uh, could I add, though, Alexi, that with times changing, though, for anyone listening or watching, mm-hmm. on the other side of that truth is another one, though. And that is that, you know, you and I have probably been on hundreds of search committees and except. Yes. And what I've noticed is that some people of the dominant culture, they will apply to something when they barely have their minimums. And they'll just take their chances. Whereas we we can go too far to the other side of the spectrum and think we have to have every T crossed, every dotted I. And oftentimes, you know, just give it a chance. You may not, not, you may be holding yourself back because you don't have one of the bullets. And, And yet you could be the perfect, you know, shining gem that they want, that people need. Right. Absolutely. No, thank you so much for that. And one of the things that I've always admired, I admire many things about you, but one of the things that I admire about you tremendously is that you lead with all of your identities. You know, like even throughout this entire conversation, you've weaved in all of the different, you know, life pieces that have created, you know, the the beautiful aspects of who you are as a leader. And, you know, it's funny because there now seems to be, and I think this is because of Gen Z, Adrian, this real rising interest in authentic leadership, you know? And so now we actually have an emergent theory, right? That, that, you know, still being tested out, but there's some truth to it, no pun intended, around this idea of authentic leadership in theory and in practice. And, you know, part of that is, leading with confidence, right? And being able to have kind of strength and principles to lead with confidence. So how did you develop the confidence to lean into all of your identities? And what advice would you have to others in terms of confidence building for themselves? Mm -hmm. I love these questions. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) They're causing me to, to be very reflective these days, but so I guess I, in answering that one, I would say, um, I, if I could give an example, um, as I said earlier, I've been on a, a search chair many, I, I literally hundreds of times, um, also a chair for deans of whole colleges, CIOs, so mm-hmm. outside of the library. And one thing, this is anecdotal, truly anecdotal, but one thing I noticed that sometimes candidates of color, women, would be very professional, talk a lot about the job itself, about their skills and attributes, but they wouldn't share a lot of their personal backgrounds. Yeah. 
And yeah. I, I started to recognize that in myself. Uh, this was many years ago now, but because I had such a, a different background, you know, again, uh, raised in poverty, I came from mm-hmm. a childhood of a lot of abuse. So I ran away from home when I was 16. I, I earned mm. a G- GED. I was high high school dropout. These mm-hmm. were things that I was relatively ashamed of in the beginning. And yeah. what, what, yeah. what that would translate to, though, is when other people would be talking about their family vacations or their, I would just be quiet because I didn't want to bring the room down. You know, it's not that you wanted to do that or, or have pity, but it was your only story that you could tell. That was right. That was you. Right. Right. I realized people were perceiving it as being very reserved and private mm-hmm. and not real friendly because you weren't sharing. But it was that other stuff going on in my head. And then I remember now bringing it back to those search committees and those experiences. By the time that you are a candidate like that in the search, mm-hmm. people are pretty much confident that you're going to be able to do the job. What they want to know is what are you, Alexia, let's say, bringing uniquely different that is going to make you a better candidate than the five other people they're looking at. And right. When, when right. I when I saw that like a pattern that was happening, again anecdotally, but I thought there were more risks for us as BIPOC people to as yes. BIPOC people to share on that level. And because we were probably culturally competent, adaptive, you know we didn't maybe feel confident to share some of our personal background. Could that be too much? Could it just show our difference too much or, you know, so, but I started thinking this is hurting the candidate somewhat mm-hmm. uh, because mm-hmm. the other candidates who happen to be white, let's say, but they were doing it. And then other people uh, related to them more and thought they were more warm or, you know, there were all these reasons. Uh, But then that all made me reflect back uh, to my own self and think, I need to start talking more about what brought me to this place Mm -hmm. and my background and my experiences and how that is different from other people. Not saying it's better, but just different. And it really could inform higher education, for example, and libraries. Yes. We often talk about transfer students and first generation and minoritized peoples. And and here, here we go. Many of us have that. So if we hold it back and not bring it to our leadership, for example, who is that serving? If we fought so hard to be there and yet we're not sharing ourselves, is I'm not sure that's fulfilling for anybody. So that's right. that's what I started thinking. Right, but it's the confidence piece, you know, that I think is is vital because you know you and I, Adrian, came into the workplace at a particular time where some of the nuances of DEI, like so, a culturally competent workplace, like no one was thinking about that. I I surprised. 
um, some team members recently when I said, you know, I was very much discouraged in wearing natural hair in the early part of my career. You know, it was it was not considered professional, right? So there was real consequence to people of color attempting to assert authenticity, right? In particular spaces and particularly in the workplace. And, you know, I guess what I'm trying to, you know, ascertain is, is the degree to which, you know, what do you give yourself a pep talk in the morning? Like I think about the comedian Cat Williams, where he talks about, he has this great skit on your star play on being your own star player okay. and how you have to talk to yourself in the morning, every morning in the bathroom mirror, as if you are the franchise player of your own team. Right. And, and I do that. I, I actually give myself pep talks in the morning, you know, before I start the work, wherever I am. And so I, I'm really interested to hear you, like, how did you grow that confidence? Because as a person, people are often surprised. I'll use myself briefly as an example people are often surprised to learn that I'm a first-generation college graduate. And it was something that I did not share. I was embarrassed about it because I was working in these corporate spaces where the overwhelming majority of individuals were not only educated, college educated, they had multiple graduate degrees and they all seemed to have gone to the same elite institutions. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and at the time, my institution wasn't necessarily considered you know, at that same elite level. Right. And so, you know, so there was always kind of this sense of of me feeling like an imposter, me like, you know, so I felt like I had to work extra hard to be able to garner the strength of of kind of one, my constitution to sit in a space to be comfortable enough to work alongside of people who had degrees from Ivy League institutions, whose parents and grandparents had also had degrees from these similar places. And they came into those spaces with a degree of knowing that I didn't have, you know, just kind of the hidden nuances, right? So what are the Adrian strategies around confidence? Like, do you say, Adrian, you're the (laughs) baddest thing since sliced bread? You know, do you read something? Is there a particular (laughs) podcast? (laughs) Well, um, I don't. I don't know if there are those things, but maybe it's the, it is maybe, you know, how we have myths for reasons. There are myths yes. that can help to feed our soul, et cetera. Yes. Uh, but maybe a myth I tell myself, and maybe not in that, that ritualistic way, but I have, as I mentioned a little briefly earlier, that I have been an activist. And I think I've always had this will you know, there's a will to power. And I don't think mine is power, but what my will is, is will to serve the underdog or will Mm. to to justice Mm -hmm. or something because of what I went through as a a younger person. Yes. Um, And then I had this quote, it's it's right in front of me because I have it on my email signature right now. (laughs) But the quote is, Sometimes we are blessed with being able to choose the time and the arena and the manner of our revolution, but more usually we must do battle where we are standing. And that's mm. from Audre Lorde, who is one mm-hmm. of my favorite poets. But the reason I have it on my email signature is because maybe that's my myth and story because I'm on a uh, I'm on a road to continue to build coalitions, influence people and our profession, if I can, influence our organization 
to bring more justice and knowledge into the world. And I know that sounds very lofty and all that, but that is what keeps me going. It Mm -hmm. truly is. If I didn't have that belief that we could, we often fall down. We don't meet those aspirational. And I'm talking even the USA. But I I have to believe we could strive toward some of those goals and aspirations while never getting there totally. I don't believe in utopia, but that is why I'm doing this work and it extends beyond libraries, but it gives me the strength to maybe even if you don't, if you don't make it uh, fake it till you make it type thing. Some days I don't feel that confident, Um, but I am in it as almost a warrior type of, way spirit where i'm going to muster that strength because it is something worthwhile to achieve so that's what i tell myself it may not work for everybody but that's mine adrian thank you so much for such a delightful interview we really appreciate your time we know that our viewers and listeners are going to enjoy all the the pieces of wisdom that you've imparted on us as a part of this podcast. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to our third Toward Inclusive Excellence Fall Semester Podcast with Dr. Adrian Lim, Director of Libraries and Professor of the Practice in the College of Information Studies at the University of Maryland College Park. Sign up for reminders of new content releases and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for your time and support. Be well.